Science. Science Po. So I didn't sleep that night, so it's not even that it kept me up at night. It was just that, oh my God, the minute they announced it, I had three phones and two computers and they were all ringing. What Keeps You Up at Night is a podcast produced by the Sciences Po Journalism School and the Paris School of International Affairs. Here we bring you personal stories from political and opinion leaders around the world. How do they balance their responsibilities? How do they deal with their doubts? And how do they manage their priorities? With those questions in mind, we want to dive into the hopes and dilemmas that come with being in charge. I am Morgan Annex. And I am Sarah Mianzouni. Maria Ressa, you're an acclaimed Filipino and American journalist. In 2021, you won the Nobel Peace Prize alongside Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov in recognition of your efforts to safeguard freedom of expression. Earlier in your career, you spent two decades working as a journalist for CNN in Southeast Asia, including as the lead investigative reporter in the region. In 2012, you co-founded Filipino news website Rappler. With your team, you documented government wrongdoings, such as extrajudicial killings perpetrated during Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte's anti-drugs campaign. You've been fighting authoritarian pushback against your work, been arrested multiple times, and continue to face pressure from the Filipino government. Thanks for having me. Maria Ressa. You moved from the Philippines to the United States at age 10 after Ferdinand Marcos switched power and imposed martial law. Do you have memories from your first night in the U.S.? What was it like? Snow. You know, I grew up in a tropical country, a country where America was kind of like a dream. And it was like sliding doors. One second I was living in, in the Philippines, and then I saw my mother come into the classroom. My mom had been living in the States. She took us out of that, and within a week or so, we were on our way to the United States. I never saw my classmates again, never saw my teachers, and landed in a New York in the JFK airport. Uh, in December, and it was snowing. It was freezing. We passed through Alaska, right? And so there I was. We we kept moving through um, a completely different world. No social signals. I could not really understand the language, and so it was um, like a blank slate. How did that make you feel, going into this new world? Um, like I had to sit and listen. Like I had to figure out what was going on, and um, I came in looking at it as an outsider and uh, as an outsider trying to figure out what was going on. It's funny, I jump countries now. Sometimes I'll spend a day in one country, go to another country, but it's very different when you don't have the cultural signals, when you don't hear the accents or when the language is unclear. But I think what it showed me is something that was important for journalism, which is you step back and look at the whole picture without any preconceptions. As an outsider looking in, it's actually a, a, a great way of looking at journalism. How different would you say that the U.S. nights were compared to the nights in your home country, if you could give concrete examples? Nights as in the nights of sleeping, that, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it was very different. So I walked into an elementary school and I was the shortest, only brown kid in the class. Um, 
you knew it was different. I felt like Americans were very aggressive. And I'm, I'm an introvert. Uh, you know, I still am an introvert. And journalism forces you out of being an introvert, but it gives you a purpose. You can ask questions. Imagine being able to ask questions of anyone and then putting that story together. I think this is why I fell in love with journalism. But when I was trying to understand the United States, it was all about proving that I deserved a seat at the table. All those questions about discovering who you are and uh, approaching a new country. As a, as a child, it must be difficult to face all that. Do you think, was it a question that kept you up at night? It's, a, it's actually about finding meaning. And how do you find meaning when you're on shaky ground, when you're on quicksand? I think for me, it was about, you know, I realized that identity, which has been so fractured in so many of our societies, that that is actually something that you decide to put together. So I'm Filipino-American. You know, it's funny, when I'm with Filipinos, I feel very American. And when I'm with Americans, I feel most Filipino. But you realize that it isn't about conforming. It isn't about, it's about how you put it together. And for me, it was about creating the person I wanted to be actively doing that. What keeps me up at night? You know, I try very hard not to be kept up at night. <laughs> you know, Because for me, it is about, again, in How to Stand Up with a Dictator, I really come down to something I learned when I was, in, when I was, a young, when I was 10 years old, which is people will want you to be what they want you to be. But that's actually, that shouldn't be the guiding light. It should be that search for meaning inside yourself. And very early on, I realized that we are our own worst enemies. That if we can embrace your fear, whatever it is you're most afraid of, you imagine it, you touch it, you embrace it. And if you do that and take the sting out of it, nothing will stand in your way. I was also a type A student. So, but that's... It's how I run my life, even today. You know, when the drug war began and we had President Duterte attacking me, attacking Rappler with legal cases. Just to remind our listeners, Rappler is the news website that you co-funded and with which you investigated, including on uh, government wrongdoings by President Duterte. Rappler is a, the first digital-only news site in the Philippines that we started. We really started thinking about it in 2011. In 2012, so I came from broadcast journalism. When we rolled it out online, you didn't have Facebook Live, YouTube Live. You didn't have any of the live. So we took the infrastructure of a television station, and we literally built it first. You know, we did an OB van that was an IP satellite van. That only lasted a few years because then the technology overtook it, right? The software overtook it. So I think that's what you're going to grapple with. Things will change so fast that you won't have time to stand still. You won't have time to necessarily think. So you are going to need to be far more aware of your values, your mission, why you do what you do. During the process of founding Rappler, do you remember long nights spent working with, the, with your colleagues? I remember excitement. It was really an exciting time because we thought that, um, you know, television. So I came from television, and when I left CNN, it was more than 200 million people watching us all around the world, right? I ran the Manila Bureau in the late 80s and then the Jakarta Bureau. So I was covering the pendulum swing of democracy. 
it's really sad that you begin to see this swinging back, right, that pendulum. But when we set up Rappler, it was really letting go of what we knew of a studio like this, right? And then realizing that there are digital tools that will make it completely different. It's creative destruction. And that's what we did. So it was more at the beginning, we started out, I used to manage the largest news group in the Philippines. So I had a thousand journalists that I was managing. And we went to 12 people, including myself, right? So all of a sudden you're doing everything. You're trying to reimagine what video looks like. Our reporters were carrying an iPhone. Um, We literally built the metal casing around it because they didn't have that yet in 2011. We were playing. So at the beginning, it was actually the excitement of trying to create something new. You have extensively worked to uncover the truth about authoritarianism. What did you find out while investigated that prevented you from sleeping? Corruption is the root of it all. If you're in investigative journalism, you follow the money. And whether that is government, private sector, or terrorism, you follow the money, right? Inevitably. And it's funny because by next year, by February, this that will be my 38th year as a journalist. And this really hasn't changed. By the time I'd been doing this for about 20 years, you realize that almost every story you will touch as a breaking news uh, reporter will fall under eight myths if you're moving into the Western world. But even the East, even the South, the global South, there are eight myths. And, and a lot of this I took out of Joseph Campbell, the power of myth, right? When we tell a story, there are archetypal myths that have been embedded in our cultures. And almost every single one, if you tap one of those, the hero's journey, inevitably you will wind up telling that story. So form and substance, it is about finding where corruption happens, because that's inevitably what will break down the checks and balances of a democracy. But also beyond that, it's the emotion that you look at. Right? Emotion that has now been turned against us by the social media, by the algorithms, by artificial intelligence, that it is humanity that you need to touch when you're telling the story. Sometimes it's easier to, to make a movie. Fiction. Right now, reality is really stranger than fiction, right? In so many ways. So I think that's the challenge for your generation's journalism, because our Tech platforms that are the major distributor of news prioritize the spread of lies, fear, anger, and hate. And yet, that actually isn't the story of humanity. That isn't the best of who we are. I get to tell those stories, or I did before. We have to be able to continue telling those stories. You mentioned several books that help you understand the world. Do you read a lot of at night? Yeah, always. It's how I collapse. That's like decades of people's lessons. A good journalist, a good author stands on top of the shoulders of other people with them. You can see this even in our tech, right? Like, how are we going to have generative AI? It's built on top of what others did beforehand. Machine learning that was so rudimentary uh, that it couldn't tell what a photo was. And now you have generative AI that can do so much more. They built on top of it. I think that's the same way. I hope we don't lose the power of, of books, right? Those are the lessons we build on. And 
where do you usually are to uh, take that power into you? Are you in your bed at home? Do you like reading in the train? Uh, everywhere I can. Yeah, but now I carry a Kindle with me. You know, in fact, I have a Kindle with me. But it's, I think that right now we're in a glut of information and it is hard for you this generation to make sense of the world. I mean, it used to be, you know, we used to call the fire hose of falsehood Russian disinformation, right? That was the phrase for it. Now it feels like our information ecosystem is coming at you. And because we don't distinguish fact from fiction, we, as in the tech companies, in fact, they, um, an MIT study said that lies spread six times faster, right? How crazy is that, right? The incentive structure is to lie to get the widest distribution. This is a corruption in the information ecosystem that's literally changing the checks and balances of the world we live in. You ask me what keeps me up at night. This is it. You're listening to What Keeps You Up at Night with Maria Ressa. I think we have less than a year to figure out whether journalism will survive or whether democracy will survive. And a lot of that is because of what has happened before, right? The abdication of responsibility of the tech companies for protecting the public sphere, the abdication of governments from protecting citizens in the public sphere. I will say France has been excellent at this, you know, in the sense that uh, President Macron in uh, 2018 was among the first leaders to try to define what the values of the internet should be. And that's what we need to get through. The thing is, if you don't have integrity of facts, if you'd have no shared reality, how can you solve any problem, right? How will you have integrity of elections if you don't have integrity of facts? That's a question actually I would pose to you guys, right? Like, how do you know what to trust? Whom to trust? You mentioned all these challenges and this a lot of information and a lot of disinformation also. How do you manage to go to sleep and to find peace when you go home at night with all this turmoil? Oh, I mean, I just decided I wasn't going to sleep until the end of 2024. <laughs> this is a sprint. I think, you know, when I wrote How to Stand Up to a Dictator, the question... I ask every reader is to answer is to answer the same question we had to answer in Rappler in 2016. What are you willing to sacrifice for the truth? This is it. This we're living through the times that will define whether democracy survives, whether journalism survives. The world as we know it is literally changing, right? Large language models. You guys use ChatGPT? You don't? Not at all? Have you tried it? No. Be honest. Haven't. <laughs> you haven't tried I haven't. it. We're under supervision. You're yeah. under? But you should try it. Sorry, teachers. <laughs> you, know, you know why you should? Because you have to understand what the technology is doing. You have to guard yourself against what the technology is doing, right? But the problem is that the large language models is not only putting together all of the knowledge in the libraries, it is also literally cataloging 
the, our biology, the language of our biology. And all of this will be changing. So a company like DeepMind, for example, which did neural networks, right? It didn't only learn how to play a game. It didn't only win against that. It also beat every single medical researcher in terms of genetic research, right? Because DNA is a language. It's a code of our humanity, again, of our biology. Anyway, sorry, I'm dragging you into my world where I think it is an extremely exciting, scary moment. Does it keep me up at night? No. I think we need to embrace this moment and make sure that it aligns with where we want our civilization to go. Take hold of your world. You need to, because if you don't, we can get lost quickly. Could you walk us through the night where you received the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo? Oh yeah, I didn't sleep that night either. <laughs> um, it, I, it happened around five o'clock in the evening um, in Manila because it was the end of the time period. It coincided with when candidates had to put in their certificates for, of candidacy for our presidential elections. So we were live at, um, And when I got the call, you know, I was actually on a live stream with the head of an Indonesian news organization and a Malaysian news organization, news groups under attack. And we, when I saw it, I was like, oh, there's a Norwegian number. So at that point, we were just doing a Q&A. So I just messaged to say, you know, I'm just going to turn off my mic and pick up the call. Uh, and when I did, I think that's when, like, you could see the video and it was shocking. I didn't expect it. It was also a recognition of the sacrifices journalists have had to make in order to keep doing our job. So it was almost, yeah, so I didn't sleep that night. So it's not even that it kept me up at night. It was just that, oh my God, the minute they announced it, every, I had three phones and two computers and they were all ringing. You know, so, so, and, um, and I needed help. So <laughs> I think, I think there was a point when we made, well, It was still COVID time, so all of Rappler, we came together and everyone was crying. And my friends from from around the world, journalist friends, were also crying. I think it's a tough time. That's why you have to find your community. And it was a validation that what we are doing, that you need to stay the course. If you're letting it keep you up at night, you aren't dealing with them constructively enough. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, all the attacks against me online, that is, if you get 90 hate messages per hour, it reminded me of like when I was 10 years old and there's a bully in the playground. Everyone is not going to like you. I don't think that should be the goal. You don't want to be like, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you're on the path to find meaning and purpose in your life. If we talk now about the ceremony in Oslo with also uh, Dmitry Muratov, who also won it with you, how did you feel during the, cer the ceremony? Who were you with? How did you celebrate? The ceremony itself and everything that was there, I think that speech took me the longest to write because trying to capture the corruption of our information ecosystem, how journalists are under attack, how anyone, any citizen, any user on social media is being insidiously manipulated, how online violence becomes real-world violence. These were all things I struggled with. We had the data, but how do you make everyone care? How do you do that, right? So that was, 
I think it was five days that we were there. And, um, and it was funny because it's the first time a journalist who's normally chasing everyone is the one that's being chased. You know, we, they, they put us in and they treated us like heads of state. You don't want to be a head of state, <laughs> especially not now. Tough time to be a head of state. But it was really surreal. And then afterwards, I thought it was even worse that within four months, you had the invasion of Ukraine. You had the potential shutdown of the two news organizations we led, and we had to keep fighting. This is the world we live in today. Yes, the Nobel Prize is a roller coaster high, unexpected, but actually it is, it's not just for me or Rappler, it is, it's for the journalists who have sacrificed so much. Look at what's happening today, and then try to create something better for tomorrow. That's what keeps me going, actually. It's not what it's not what I'm afraid of that keeps me going or keeps me awake. It's what are we going to build to make this better? Because it must get better. What gives you hope when you're at night and thinking about how to make things better? You guys, you better do well. <laughs> no pressure. Right? It's no pressure, but like, you know, and it is sad. Like my generation is handing a broken world. But look at the flattening of meaning. In language, you know, you use the word democracy. China says it's a democracy, right? Is it? <laughs> you know, it isn't. So we have to fight for meaning. And so what gives me hope? The idealism of youth. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Maria Ressa. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time and until then, take care and sleep well.